Hey guys, welcome to episode 63 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get into our story of mass murder, we want to thank you all who left reviews for us on iTunes and other podcast listening platforms. You guys are amazing and we love the kind words. They really do mean a lot. One of them was from another history teacher whose name was Bon Jovi Girl. So yes, I feel as if we are soul sisters. (laughs) (laughs) I love anything New Jersey, Bon Jovi, Bruce, Jug Handles. I jug handles. Yeah. Well, I do not. <laughs> They're very dear to my heart. John hates a jug handle. I hate jug handles with a passion. It is what it is. He illegally tries to just like make illegal U-turns on highways. And I'm like, you can't do that. This is New Jersey. Well, for our listeners, maybe maybe people who don't leave, live in New Jersey or live in New York can understand my frustration. I understand. But like, we're going to get pulled over one day. You're probably right. <laughs> we had a listener email us. Um, she works nights or at a factory with other women who listen to the podcast and I told her I'd give them a shout out but I can't find the email anywhere and they like put out a newsletter and they put us in a newsletter so it's really cool yeah it was really cool and I wanted to give them a shout out and I guess this is me kind of ruining the shout out but if you girls could just reach out again that would be amazing so we could give you a proper shout out I agree I apologize for that. And I promise, guys, that I read all of the emails and comments that you send to us, whether it's to our email account or any of our social media accounts. But sometimes it's really hard to get to everybody. There's just not enough hours in the day. But I promise I read them all and I try to get back to everyone I can. We try to do our best. We also want to thank our new Patreon supporters. We hoped that you enjoyed the two bonus episodes from October. And we want you to know that we have exciting things planned for this November. Um, We already have the two episodes done, so we just have to record them. If you would like to join our Patreon page, you get ad-free episodes that we release on the normal podcast, but then you also get two bonus episodes. One bonus episode for those who donate $1 to $2, and two for those who donate $5 and above. You can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash couple. Okay, you ready for the show? I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) The 4th of July in Marathon County, Wisconsin, was looking promising in the summer of 1987. Independence Day was falling on a Saturday, and the weather was going to be perfect. A slight breeze and a high of 75 degrees. Perfect weather for barbecuing, drinking beers, and watching fireworks once the sun set in the rural, isolated county which sat basically at the center of the Midwestern state. And what better place to celebrate the 4th of July than in the heartland of America? However, the day wouldn't turn out as great for all of the residents of Marathon County. While the people of Athens, Wisconsin, sat on their blankets, watching the explosion of fireworks with their children in their arms, they had no clue that six miles to the west, There was a more sinister light show going on within the ramshackled gray farmhouse of the Coons family. The darkness of their home being illuminated, not just by the fireworks from miles away, but from the discharging of a twenty-two caliber rifle. As four members of the family are gunned down in their home, another taken in the night. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows, 
If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The mysteries surrounding the Coons family are the only thing that has surpassed the tale of their murders. It is also the only reason, many say, justice was never given to the family. So first, let's get into who the Coons family was. The Coons family was originally from Manitowoc. Early records of them were from the mid-1800s. They chose to settle in Wisconsin, as many other German immigrants did. Of course, the town was made famous later on by the Stephen Avery case, as featured on the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. Well, the Coons family ancestors had a history of mental illness. Around 1900, while still living in Manitowoc, Mary Coons had to admit one of her sons to the Northern Hospital for the Insane. Five years later, she was killed by her son while she was sleeping. He is going to bludgeon her to death with an old tool, and as he's killing his mother, he kind of wakes up everybody else in the family, and they watch in horror as he's just killing their mother for no reason. I would have to say that's probably the most terrifying thing that you could be a part of, especially if you're sleeping. Yeah, and the reason for the other brother being admitted into the mental hospital was because he was showing acts of aggression as well against the family. Okay. So this is something that's definitely in the bloodline here. Wow. So five years after she admitted her first son, she was murdered by her other son, and he was admitted into the same hospital, actually even within the same wing of his brother. I mean, that's kind of rare. I mean, to have both of your children kind of um you know showing the same signs of mental illness and then having oh, yeah. them both well having one committed maybe that's why the other one did it it was because maybe they realized that like they would be going there with the other brother i don't know i think it's more of the mental illness is yeah. coming out but also it's interesting that the mental illness developed so young because usually it happens like in your later 20s and it's rare that in the 1900s someone goes to a I guess what they called an insane asylum for a real reason. Right. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> like true. usually it was it was like normal things. That's that, true. Because I feel like back then all you had to do was you know oh this person's crazy. Get your crazy. period uh, and then you would be sent to an insane. Yeah, asylum. pretty yeah. much. And then, oh, just sign <laughs> this piece of paper and uh, we'll see you never. <laughs> so now the two brothers are going to reside in the same mental institution, and the rest of the family kind of wants to escape the stigma that they've received, especially the trauma that happened within that house. I wouldn't want to live there anymore. Oh, no, neither would I. So the entire family then decides to try their luck with farming in 1914. This is finally the push that's going to get them out of Manitowoc. At this time in the United States, there was a boom in farming. A war had begun in Europe, and America was quietly sending supplies to their allies overseas. Extra money was given to farmers to plant more crops. And on top of that, they were given more money for the food that they produced. The Coons family wanted to get in on the money-making, so they chose to move to the farming county of Marathon. However, they, like many other naive families that did not know a lot about farming land, were taken advantage of. They were sold a massive piece of land, 108 acres to be exact, for a relatively low price. However, there was one catch. The land was no good. The land they bought was not abandoned, 
the land that they bought was supposed to be just an abandoned farm, but that's not really what it was. It was land left over from the Rhett Brock Land and Lumber Company. It was covered in tree stumps, with roots that seemed to go as deep as the center of the earth. Their removal was near impossible, unless the family had thousands of dollars, which, of course, they did not. The Coons family, which at this point is made up of three nuclear families at the time, collectively put in their life savings to pay for the land. I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty crappy. I mean, you have to understand, like, back then, I'm sure, as well, like, mm-hmm. there was no easy way of removing roots and stumps. No. Like, the way we could do it now, we just put a machine on top of it, and it pretty much just rips the whole thing out without, like, any effort at all. So, I, could, I can't even yeah, imagine. Yeah, it was a little different in 1914. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like, they probably have to, like, dig that shit out, just every single yeah. stump. That's crazy. Well, I mean, unfortunately, whenever there's, like, a big boom... I would say probably in any country, there's going to be people that are taking advantage of it. Oh, of course. So it happened with the gold rush. It's going to happen with the farming. It's There's always people that are going to take advantage of the naivety of people not from the area. Of course, because everyone, everyone wants to make it, you know, especially back then. You know, Yeah. So. I mean, it's sad that these three families pooled their money together and now they have this land that they can't use. But now they're also outsiders in the community. But now there's also this, I would say, I mean, I would feel aggression because I'm angry that you guys from town screwed us over. So how could there be a working relationship ever? That's true, too, actually. And another thing that's going to isolate the Coons family is the fact that they were really poor. They dressed in outdated hand-me-down clothing, and they were often mocked by other people of the town. This, along with their distrust of the people that had wronged them, forced the family to turn inward. They kept to themselves, and they became more and more isolated. And they lived almost as their ancestors did, without running water or plumbing, desperately doing whatever they could to get by. I mean, that's pretty crazy, if you think about it. I mean, even even for that time, not to have any sort of plumbing or running water, I mean, that's that's pretty... It is hard. Yeah. It's definitely hard in 1914. And then now we're kind of talking about the 1930s. But even when it's the time of the crime, 1987, the family still doesn't have running water or plumbing. In 1987. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if that's all you know, and if they're very isolated, right? I mean, it would make sense that they have never seeked higher forms of taking care of themselves or... It's all they you know, know. Yeah, exactly. They don't know any different. Right. <laughs> and I guess when you are as poor as they were, because because they have a distrust of the outside world, their education is suffering because of that. So there is really no way for advancement. And they can't use this 108 acres that they're living on. But it's also working against them because it's keeping them more isolated from the outside town. Yeah, no, I understand. It's crazy. And that's what brings us to the 4th of July, 1987. 55-year-old Kenneth Coons has driven back to his family's property. He lived in a trailer a few acres away from the main house. And I call it a main house, but it's really like a, a farmhouse that's falling apart. Like one level. There's not two levels to it. I mean, you have to say to yourself, I mean, that house has probably been there since they bought the land. Oh, yeah. It's you been know? there for a long time. And... You could tell it hasn't been fixed since it was made. 
Yeah, and and you know what? I'm sure not just their house, any house, any farmhouse um, that's been around that long is going to have that happen. I mean, yeah, but we'll get into why. Okay, it's falling <laughs> apart. So before just going right to his trailer, Kenny is going to decide to check out the house and see if anyone needed anything. Kenny was described by all that knew him as being extremely shy and dim-witted. So obviously that's only a term that used probably in rural America in 1987. It's not something we would say today, but we're going to roll with it. That's how he is described. He had a very low IQ, but he was the family member that was the most functioning with outside society. Because Kenny was the only member of the Coons family that had a job outside of the house. Which is crazy. Yeah. For, you know, even for 1987. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I just can't get over the fact, uh, even this early on in the story, how isolated they are that only one family member has seeked outside employment. I find that mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, they're trying to just live off of the little jobs that they're making. The main income for the family is kind of also like the Avery's, I guess you could say, is buying and selling cars. Well, it's a very easy way to make money, and it's cash business. Right, and they're also living in a way that they don't need to buy a lot of things. Right. When he gets home, he finds his elderly aunt, Marie Coons, who was 72 years old, lying on the stairs, going into the home, dead from a gunshot wound. In a panic, he ran throughout the rest of the house. And as he did, he was met with tragedy after tragedy, while the old radio in the living room was blasting the Brewers and Angels baseball game on top volume. His 30-year-old brother, Randy, was found lying on the kitchen floor. His uncle, Clarence, who was 76, was found in a bedroom. His other aunt, who was 81 years old, was found on a living room chair. They also were dead as a result of a 22 caliber gunshot wound as a result of 22 caliber gunshot wounds that riddled their bodies but more frightening than the discovery of his family's bodies was the realization that his mother helen was missing from the scene he knew something had to be done to her because she didn't leave the family property alone anytime she's ever seen in public she always is accompanied by her son randy who drives her everywhere because she's kind of incapable of walking on her own. So Kenny calls the police immediately, and he's in hysterics. His family is dead, and his mother is missing. And as the call came in to the small-town police department, eyebrows were raised. Now, don't get me wrong, the response was immediate and professional, but those men were more than just police officers. They were residents of the town. And never has an outsider been allowed into the secluded residence of the Coons family. Their interest was piqued. Just what had been going on within those walls for decades. And most importantly, were the rumors true? When the officers got to the isolated farmhouse, they were stunned. First, by the grisly murders. And secondly, by the condition of the house. The house seemed unlivable. There was no running water in the house, and the only heat source in the Wisconsin house was a wood-burning stove that seemed to also have been used for cooking. Trash covered the floor in every room of the house. Moldy food was found 
in every corner of the room, including the bathroom. Mold covered the walls, and the entire house smelled of body odor and rot. There was also stacks and stacks of paperwork and newspapers. It appeared the family were hoarders as well. But there were a few things that looked out of place in the decaying farmhouse. The brand new television set and VCR. These modern day conveniences seemed out of place in this house that seemed to have been arrested in time. So why was the television chosen over running water? The answer was piled next to the VCR. The Coons family had a very extensive collection of pornographic videotapes and magazines out in the open. Sideways glances could be seen amongst the investigators. The rumors, they all seemed to be true. In a small town, everyone talks. And weeks before the crime, Helen, who was the missing woman, had told a store clerk that she was upset with her family because they were all watching sexually explicit movies together. And this really got the town's 1,000 residents talking. At first, everyone thought maybe the elderly woman was just exaggerating and talking about a movie that she thought was distasteful. But it was made clear then that it was true. The family was watching these pornographic tapes together. I mean, come on, man. I mean, that, uh, like, what people do in their on their own time is, is their business, and, and they're right. But, like, I would feel so weird if I had to sit in a room with, uh, you know, in front of my TV and watch, you know, pretty much porn with my family. That That's, like, weird well, I, as hell. I think the implications go a lot further. You have this isolated family. Nobody has gotten married. So everyone is assuming that they're, they have incestuous relationships with each other. Right. Well, that's the first thing I thought of when you were bringing up, you know. Like them turning exactly, inward. Exactly. So the fact that now porn is not just present in the house, there was a lot of it, which would be, they said the amount of porn that was found in the house would be weird to find in someone's bedroom, let alone right out there in the living room. And it seemed like they kind of took pride in this or this was an activity they enjoyed because they didn't spend money on modern day conveniences, but they did just to watch the porn tapes. It's interesting. It is really. It's it's a weird fact there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really doesn't get any weirder than that. <laughs> well, maybe it does. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed that the further the investigators got into the house, the more they were finding out about the family. It was clear that the family was very close in this small house. Helen shared a bed with her adult son, Randy. Clarence, Marie, and Irene all slept together in the living room on one large pull-out bed. Now, this is not the first time the closeness of the Coons family had been called into question. In 1933, Helen became pregnant at 15. See, it's interesting because there's a huge gap in ages between Kenny and his brother, Randy. Kenny's 55, Randy's 30. Okay. So when she got pregnant with Kenny, she was only 15 years old. And she had initially said that a neighbor by the name of Frank Gums had raped her. Gums was convicted of this crime and spent time in jail. And the family, the Gums family, had always hated the Coons family 
for that accusation and kind of ruining their good name within the town. So that kind of really turned the town even more so against the Kunzes in the 1930s. And what made people more angry is that over time it said that Clarence, who was extremely close to Helen, was really the father of Kenny versus the man that served time in jail for sexual assault that most likely didn't happen. Even Kenny himself accepted the fact that Clarence was both his father and uncle. But that was never proven through DNA testing. Like, we don't know for a fact. We don't know, yeah. So this would also make one question the paternity of Randy, who was born 24 years after his brother Kenny. I mean, I think it's safe to say. Because who was the outsider that she had sex with? Exactly. They don't talk to anybody else. No. And and I don't think that, I mean, if that was, um, I don't want to say an excuse, but just like an easy way to say, oh, this person, you know, assaulted me. I mean, I, I guess maybe back then they didn't want to be viewed that way. Right. But, uh, apparently it didn't matter after a certain time because there's no account of any other interactions that would lead to another pregnancy. Right. So, I don't know. It's a, It's interesting. But it's not like investigators can say... Okay, let's do a DNA test just to like find out if these rumors are true because the reasoning for the DNA test, they can't just put curiosity down on a piece of paper. You know what I mean? Right. So the investigators of the small town have to put all the rumors behind them. And they really did. In fact, the whole town did. They rallied around one fact that even though the Coons family lived an isolated life, they were still members of the town, a very small town. And they would do whatever it takes to bring the killer of the Coons family to justice and also to bring Helen home. So I think this kind of speaks to that whole idea of like that Midwestern feelings of small town America coming together that even though you have these outsiders who are kind of distrusted, you're still going to rally around them and try to solve a crime because somebody killed them. Right. I mean, and as far as, I mean, that's your job as a police officer. You know, I mean, you have to, no yeah. matter what, you have to do your job. <laughs> yeah. And there's um, no sign whatsoever of any type of botched investigation. The police officers organized searches for Helen. They did a great job with the crime scene. I mean, it was really hard for them to try and get evidence from that crime scene because the house was so, like, mistreated and gross and it was. It was hard to tell, okay, was something displaced? Well, we don't really know because everything's kind of displaced. Right. It makes it a little difficult. Yeah. (laughs) So, of course, police knew right away that Helen was not the perpetrator of the crime. At first, people were thinking, okay, maybe Helen did this because she's the one that's missing. And she also, with her son Randy, purchased twenty-two caliber bullets for their twenty-two caliber rifle. And it was the same kind of bullets that were used within the murder. But that's something that's going to make sense just period because it's it would be completely improbable that someone from a different town came into this tiny Wisconsin town, drove to the 108-acre property and killed them when they don't even have relationships with people within the town, let alone yeah. outside of the town. Which would make that community on edge if you think about it, because if there's only a thousand people in that community, that means one person or, or, or whatever is in that, like, you're pretty much 
in a community with a killer. Yes. Because it's so small. There's I mean, only a thousand people. you probably people. know that person, which is even You 100% crazier. know them. A thousand people is uh-huh. nobody. I know. So that's why, of course, the bullets are going to be the same because everyone's twenty two caliber rifle bullets are the same in the town. That yeah. makes it really hard, too, for the investigators. Not to mention if if there are other farms or just other homes that might hunt or, you know, small game. I mean, everybody's going to have that. Yeah, there's a lot of hunting. Yeah. So there's also the fact that the 70-year-old woman was not physically capable of chasing down four other members. So if the woman could be found alive, she most likely could tell investigators who had killed her family. The community got together, and with the assistance of the police department, they formed a search party to start looking for Helen, wearing their matching Where's Helen t-shirts or buttons. They first searched the family's 108-acre property, and from there, they expanded their search, each day coming up empty-handed. As the search continued, the investigators narrowed in on one suspect. But what didn't help them was the state of the crime scene. It really was a disgusting mess, and it was really hard to tell if, like we said before, something had been disturbed, because everything was. But one interesting thing they did find in the house were large stashes of cash throughout the house that amounted to $20,000. So they realized, okay, this wasn't a robbery, because the cash was kind of out there in the open, so nobody grabbed it. But could this crime be motivated by drugs, possibly? And that's the reason for them having large amounts of cash? Maybe there was even more cash, and that's just what the killer had left. Right. I mean, that's true. I mean, if you think about it, they have 108 acres. It's secluded. I mean, it would it would kind of promote maybe dr- like drugs, like if you were yeah. to, like, whether or not grow it or store it, you have a lot of property. Or make it. Or make it, yeah. So the best bet that they had was to look at the actions of the family in the days and weeks before the crime. The Coons were isolated and liked to keep to themselves. The only outside person that the family had come into contact with in the weeks before their murder was a small-time criminal from the town named Chris Jacobs III, a 23-year-old Medford farmer. He had bought a vehicle from Randy a few days before. So a warrant was issued for the home of Jacobs six months after the discovery of the Coons family bodies, despite the fact that Jacobs denied any involvement in the crimes. When the Marathon County Sheriff's Department searched his property, they found the car that he purchased from the Coons family, two twenty-two caliber rifles, twenty-two caliber ammunition, spent shell casings, and a newspaper clipping about the murder of the family. That's a little suspect right there. (laughs) Yeah, I think everything else is kind of normal, and I would expect to find at his home, except for the newspaper clippings. That's a little interesting. Yeah, it is. I think it's weird that people clipped newspaper articles, like, period. Like, every criminal clips newspapers. You know, you know what kind so of picture? So just like, don't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I no, know. I hear you on that. <laughs> you know, you know what's kind of funny? I always like picture in my mind like those movies where it's like all the newspaper clippings on a wall with the little strings and the tacks. Like that's what I picture in my mind when I hear like newspaper them. clippings. <laughs> that's more the police do that, though. I know, but I'm just saying though, like that's what I envision in my mind. That's what you see happening. Yeah. I think of just like a weird like scrapbook with like 
the cover of it like human skin and they open it and oh it's like God. all of the that's where my mind goes <laughs> okay. so that's the difference between you and i yes that is the like difference. skin book of newspaper clippings that's fantastic to know that yeah. my wife thinks about skin books <laughs> awesome so once the car was searched a receipt was found and the receipt was for tires and this was a particular point of interest because the only physical evidence that could be taken from the crime scene were the shell casings and tire prints that could not be linked to Kenny's vehicle or any other vehicles that the Coons owned or had owned. So this was stupid on the part of Jacobs. He got new tires. So then driving to the family property, those tire prints aren't going to be anywhere else. That's kind of weird. Why is it weird? Maybe the tires were bald. I mean... Stupid, you mean? Yeah. It, well, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It is stupid. I mean, I, I mean, why would you do that? Because he's a 23-year-old Medford small-time <laughs> criminal that you like clips newspapers. I guess you're right. Maybe That's he has why. a skin book. <laughs> With his skin book. <laughs> so the shell casings found in Jacob's house were the same ones found on the Coons' house. But again, this doesn't really mean too much because everyone in the town has the same shell casings. The tracks of the new tires also match the ones found on the property, but it was determined that neither of the two guns taken from Jacob's house was the one that was used at the crime scene. So we have differing circumstantial evidence. I mean, he could have gotten rid of the gun, but it it would have really helped investigators if one of them was the gun. It's possible that he maybe took the gun of the family. I mean, you know what I mean? We don't know if the family gun's missing. No, none of the family guns were used, and Kenny said no, no guns were missing. And that's interesting, too, if you think about it, because if someone's on your property, if you have any sort of time to react at all, you would have probably pulled out your gun if you saw somebody with a gun come in your house. Well, so it had to be something that was caught that caught all of them off guard. We have to remember, too, that the only young member of the family that was killed was Randy, who was 30. The rest were elderly in their 70s and 80s. So you, they can't really protect themselves or react the way a younger person would. I guess so. As quickly. Yeah. yeah. Three months after the search of Jacob's home, another development happened in the Coons family investigation. Helen's body was found. Still partially frozen in a creek near Medford, Wisconsin. She, like her siblings, cousins, and son, had been shot in the head with a twenty-two caliber rifle. The district attorney believed that there was enough circumstantial evidence to convict Jacobs. So, after the body of Helen was found, he was charged with five counts of being party to a first-degree murder. His trial began in October of 1989. That was the month and year I was born. Check you out. I know. I didn't know I shared such a special bump. So the evidence against him was as follows. Tire tracks on the property that kind of matched his new tires. The shell casing similarities, although that was a rough one. But then also the fact that Helen's body was found in close proximity to Jacob's Medford farm. I feel like some of that can't be coincidence, you know? Yeah. It's, there's a lot there. But again, circumstantial evidence has not worked in the past. Right. The defense was smart, and they played into who the Coons family was. When the jurors, who were from neighboring Brown County, heard about the isolation, incest, hoarding, 
and porn, they were repulsed by the family. The defense successfully dehumanized the victims, making the circumstantial evidence all the more meaningless. And on top of that, Jacobs was transformed. He was clean-shaven, showered, and his hair was cut. It looked basically like, would this guy that you see here even ever interact with people like that? And the obvious answer from outsiders would be no. So on October 28th, 1989, Christopher Jacobs III was acquitted of five counts of being party to first-degree murder. Now, this may have been a loss for the prosecution, but they weren't willing to let Jacobs go. They truly believed that he was guilty of killing five people, and they didn't want him in their community. In order to win this, the prosecutor's office needed to play their cards right. And so far, they had. For example, I don't know if you caught on to it, but... In the first trial, Jacobs wasn't charged with the murder of the Coons family, but being a party to those murders. Marathon County District Attorneys were now going to try and get Jacobs on the next crime that they think he committed. And this crime was reaching its statute of limitations, so they needed to charge him quickly. So in 1993, Jacobs was charged with kidnapping and false imprisonment of Helen Coons. Of course, Jacob's lawyers are going to fight these charges under the pretenses of double jeopardy. He argued that being charged with these crimes violated his constitutional rights. He appealed the decision to charge him all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. However, they refused to hear his case. So just really quick to get into double jeopardy and what it means and why it doesn't apply here. Double jeopardy is a clause of the Fifth Amendment that guarantees a person will not be tried twice for the same crime within the same jurisdiction. Double jeopardy occurs if someone is charged with a crime and found innocent and then charged with the same crime a second time. Double jeopardy protects you against three different types of abuses. A second prosecution for the same offense after conviction, a second prosecution for the same offense after acquittal, and multiple punishments for the same offense. However, there are some exceptions to double jeopardy. An individual can be tried twice based on the same facts as long as the elements of each crime are different. So, for example, if a defendant is tried for a burglary that occurred at a property on January 1st, 2000 and is acquitted, he can't be tried a second time for the burglary at the same location at the same date. However, if the defendant is tried and acquitted for alleg allegedly selling cocaine at that location, the same defendant can be tried for a separate offense. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, you, you know, it, it's so crazy that there's so many like little... It's loopholes. There's loopholes. If you can't get them yeah. for the burglary, you can try to get them for cocaine. Right. That's why a lot of times when people are charged with things, they're only really charged with half of the things they did because if it doesn't work and they can't prosecute them for it, then they're going to try to use the other offenses that they did. It's it's a legal strategy that prosecution uses a lot of times, especially when they feel like they really do have a suspect that committed the crimes. However, um, double jeopardy does not protect an individual from civil lawsuit cases. So there's a difference between criminal law and civil law. Right. So you could 
be brought to civil court. Like O.J. Simpson, for example, who was found guilty, but then the families of the victims took him to civil court where he was found. Did I say he was found guilty the first time? Yeah. Not guilty. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's... Oh, I think we know what you meant, Yeah, though. Freudian slip. <laughs> so due to all the appeals for the second trial for Jacobs, he isn't going to face a judge until June of 1998, which is 11 years after the mass murder took place. This trial took two weeks. The district attorney and the assistant district attorney argued that Jacobs killed four members of the Coons family, Randy, Marie, Irene, and Clarence. He then kidnapped Helen and took her to the swamp near his house, stood her up against a tree, and shot her in the head. The main focus of the prosecution's case was the information that they newly obtained in 1993, when Jacobs was charged a second time. The reason for this charging, five years after the fact, was because in 1993, Jacob's former girlfriend, Stacy Weiss, is going to make a confession. Weiss stated that Jacobs confessed to her that he killed the Coons family in 1991 when they were dating. She said on the stand that he confessed as they were driving back from their pool league at a bar. He asked her how she would react if he told her he did murder those people. He went on to say that he did it to prove to himself that he was a man. And that explains why the money is still there. Yeah, I don't think that proves that you're a man. I think that proves that you're a coward. Yeah, killing... And and a really uh, shitty human being. Yeah. (laughs) He told her that he wanted to drive her up to the Coons property and park next to the house. As the couple sat outside of their vehicle, he told her how he went to the house late on the 4th of July. Randy knew him because he had just sold him a car, and he let him in. The two began to fight about something, and then Jacob shot Randy Coons. He then traveled throughout the house, shooting the other elderly members of the family. He then tied up Helen and took her with him. He then made her drive to the spot where he had shot and left Helen. I think it's sick that he drove her to the places. Yeah, think about this. Your boyfriend, husband, whatever, is telling, you know, confessing to you, right? And then goes beyond that to just say, hey, look, uh, let's take a drive over there. I want to show you what I did and how I did it. Like, you're sitting there like, holy shit, am I next right now? Yeah, I would be scared that he wanted to kind of relive what he did. And then kill me. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, like in this crazy. same place it's that's insane like you know what this guy needs a mental institution oh yeah <laughs> like you know you know forget what? the coons family this guy needs an institution right now i think in 1991 he felt untouchable because if in 1989 he was given a not guilty plea i mean a not guilty reading from a jury and now it's two years have passed and he hasn't been charged since he felt like he was untouchable so that's why he said what he said to his girlfriend And it really came back to bite him because he wasn't intelligent enough to realize that they hadn't charged him with everything they could have charged him with. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. So she told the court that she was terrified and didn't want to react because she didn't know what he was going to do to her. Weiss also said that Jacobs told her that he told his attorney that he was the one who committed the murders and that the attorney wrote this down and put it in a sealed envelope. So on the stand, obviously protecting himself, the attorney is going to go in on Weiss. 
not only because he needs to prove her wrong to protect his client, but he also has to basically prove that he is still an ethical lawyer. So Jacob's defense attorney tried to discredit his client's ex-girlfriend by establishing that she has two very strong motives to lie. And he's kind of right. First, she has a vendetta against him because the couple broke up and it was a pretty rough and very public breakup. And secondly, she received a lesser sentence for bank robbery charges. I mean, bank robbery is pretty intense. It's not like, you know, minor drug charge. I want to like only get time served for that. She robbed a bank. Yeah, true. But then I could sit here and say, but that would give her a reason to tell the truth. Because if they, if the, if everybody involved in this case finds that her accusation, or you know, isn't fruitful, she's not going to get a lesser sentence. It's only when that accusations proved true that your sentence would be reduced. So I think that she's probably telling the truth. No, I get that. I I think I don't think her criminal activity means that she's lying about this but to a jury it's going to look a little suspicious so that's kind of working against her and what she's trying to do so besides the testimony of jacob's ex the prosecution relied on the same circumstantial evidence as the first trial and this time the evidence along with the confession worked because after a four-hour deliberation a saint croix county jury found him guilty Jacobs was sentenced to 31 years in prison, and his mandatory release date is February 8th, 2020, next February. Oh, boy. Yep. Although this sounds like justice was served, the Marathon County prosecutor does not. The Coons family knows no justice because, as he said, they were treated like white trash that didn't matter. And this man should have been put away in 1989. But because people passed judgment on them, they weren't put away. Right. And we've seen that time and time again. You know, that's just, it's, it's, it's sad how we look at other people yeah. and even the people that are in charge, like to carry out sentences or to carry Correct. out, you know, just the law. That sometimes that is something that is looked at, whether that be the way you live or uh, unfortunately your religion or your race or anything like those these things are unfortunately looked deciding at deciding yeah, factors absolutely and it is really sad and you know what i kind of don't blame the family for being so isolated because when how they live or what they did is kind of brought to the public's attention they are thought lesser of so that's probably why you had this cycle of isolation for so many years do I think incest is still illegal and irresponsible when it comes to offspring? I would say, yeah. But we don't know if that's even true. Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway is there was distrust back in 1914 or 1915, and that distrust carried all the carried way into through. the 80s. So there, there is a reason. It's not like, oh, just one day they just decided, you know, fuck society and we're just going to go right. on our own. It this is something that built. stemmed from yes. 1914 and them first yeah. moving. And generations of, of family. Right. to Marathon County. And um, I know there's one other case that also contributes to it. There was another family um, that was more of like the murderous aspect of it. But the familial situation that x-file episode home 
Okay. Do you remember that episode? It wasn't like they banned it from being played. I kind of, I actually, I want to say I, on I a remember. Lot of, yeah. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it is the most disturbing episode of the X-Files ever. And a lot of broadcasting channels wouldn't play it. And it's about like kind of a incestuous family that lives isolated, but it's in Pennsylvania. It's like the Peacock family. And they're extremely aggressive in protecting like their inbred offspring. It's yeah. it's a messed up episode. I remember watching it as a kid and halfway through and my parents being like, you got to go to bed. Yeah, right. And me being like, no way. I want to see this well, whole thing play out. Well, maybe that's why you think of skin books now. Maybe, maybe it is. Yeah. But, you know, it's sad, too, because even in this family's depiction of kind of what their life was like, they're still, even though they were murdered, being looked at like monsters. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah, it is. And and then one more thing I wanted to bring up because I really thought it was kind of interesting. So, like, his comments about how, like, him killing somebody to prove that he was a man it makes me think that, like, that would be something that you say if, like, back in the day, if you had a kid and, you know, father and son go out hunting, oh, kill your first deer type of thing. Like, kill, like you know, to hunt an animal or whatever. It's like, oh, that makes you a man type of thing. Like, like, like so I'm what I'm trying to say is I'm equating that to him thinking that this family this is like family animals. is like, like game. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how they were treated. Yeah. And, you know, in reality, this wasn't. The family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have Eyes. These were just people trying to get by and live a quiet, peaceful life. Was it, did they maybe have some weird things that they liked? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they should be murdered and the people that murdered them shouldn't be held accountable. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, guys. So that's it for episode 63. Again, please... If you'd be so kind as to subscribe and to review us, please five stars only. We would appreciate that. And you could, if you want, join our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two crime couple. And we will be back in two weeks. And the next episode is a serial killer. Can't wait. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.